Welcome to Health Now, WebMD's podcast about health, wellness, and you. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We've got a great episode for you today. Let's get started. Talk about unstoppable. Our next guest, para-athlete Adrienne Haslett, is that word personified. She's been through more than most people can imagine. She was a spectator at the Boston Marathon in 2013, and terrorist bombings at that race claimed her lower left leg. And in January of this year, she was hit by a car in a crosswalk, denting her prosthetic leg and crushing her left shoulder, separating her elbow and injuring her ribs. She's had to deal with physical injuries and pain, and all of the emotions and grief that come flooding in when your old life gets ripped apart. She's endured PT session after PT session, learned the ins and outs of her new leg, and so much more. But that's far from her whole story. Make no mistake, Haslett is no victim. Formerly a world-class ballroom dancer, she's a hardcore athlete, running races and training for the 2020 Boston Marathon. She posts about getting stronger every damn day. Plus, she's forming a foundation to support other para-athletes. And she's here today to talk about her very special journey with us. Adrian. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to chat with you. And thank you for that very kind introduction. Absolutely. First of all, how are you doing today? Were you out training earlier? Yes, uh, I'm doing great today. Thank you. I was out training earlier. Uh, I did a track, what I call a track Tuesday workout uh, this morning. I slept in a little. I normally am at track on Tuesdays with coach uh, at about um, 6.15. Get started at exactly 6.34 a.m. on Tuesdays. But this week he has it off, so I was running solo on the, on another track, um, and I got after it at about, I think it was about 10 o'clock by the time I made it out there. So I got to sleep in, but tackled my workout nonetheless. It wasn't it wasn't a day off for me. That's great. <laughs> I would imagine you don't take too many days off. I would think. <laughs> no, though you know I'm I'm relishing in the time that I have now because heading into hardcore training of Boston 2020 will be, um, it'll be really intense. So on days that I have off now, which aren't a lot, um, or afternoons that I'm not, you know, I'm obviously not doing double run days yet. Uh, but coaches warned me that those will be in my future. So I'm enjoying my evenings off um, from running at the moment and relishing in that before it gets hardcore. Exactly. Take them while you still have them. <laughs> yes, exactly. I've noticed that on your emails, you put this statement at the end. It says, I am a survivor defined by how I live my life, not a victim defined by what happened in my life. And when you tell your story, where do you like to start? Do you start with the 2013 marathon or before that or after that? You know, I, st I start with, you know, when I grew up, uh, I start with being a determined young girl who was always on the move and wanted to, I don't think I had a desire to be in athletics. I, I played soccer. I'm using air quotes right now. Uh, I played soccer, <laughs> um, meaning picking flowers in the, in the field. And then the ball came to me and I like turned to my dad and said, oh my gosh, look, I got the ball and it was gone. Um, <laughs> Is that not so how you play soccer? That's time. how I play soccer <laughs> still. <laughs> no, no, good. I'm not the only one. Uh, so that didn't last long. I was really in it for the social aspect and then, and then the ice cream after. But I didn't have a real desire to play athletics, but I did have a desire to be social and move a lot. And that took me to dance. So I think my story starts with just being that determined girl with having difficulty kind of finding what was good for me 
to get that adrenaline out and that energy out rather than just going crazy at home. And then when I found dance, I think that started my story of just being a professional ballroom dancer. And I was just on a day off in 2013. And that starts the story of, you know, I, I like to say that we all have two lies and the second one starts the very moment we find out we only have one. We all have those moments in our life where we're like, oh my gosh, like this is it. I've got to make the most of it. So I think that's really, that's really where my first life started was when 2013 happened. And if it's not too hard for you, I'd like to ask you about that yeah. day. What were yeah. your first memories after the bombing when you knew what exactly had happened to your leg? Yeah, you know, I, I remember everything. I think that for me, being a seeker of knowledge, for me, that, that's a good thing, as horrific as it was. I remember the first bomb hitting and yelling terrorist attack out loud, which does get you investigated by the FBI, as it should, because the bomb was so loud. And the next one hit, and I was on the ground. And I remember my eyes opened, and uh, I saw smoke before anything else. I smelled the all-familiar smell that us, a lot of women and some men would recognize in the burned hair and the curling iron smell times 100, which is actually my own hair on fire. And I remembered looking down and seeing my ankle gone. My toes were still attached. I don't know how much detail I should give. My toes were still attached and the tendons were still attached, but it was all floppy. Uh, the bones in my foot and my ankle and part of my calf were completely gone and I was bleeding out. I remember just being terrified of my body. I wanted to get away from it. I wanted to stay alive, but my first thought was escape that scene that was the reality that I was in that didn't quite seem real. The pain hadn't hit me yet because our bodies are really wonderful in the sense that they don't allow us to feel that drastic pain right away. So I somehow rolled over <clears throat> and barrel crawled on my belly and my elbows across all the shattered glass from the building that had also blown out uh, that was next to me. And I went over to a door and just started clawing at the door before someone drug me inside what was, I didn't know it was at the time, a restaurant and laid me down at the bottom of the stairs. And that's when I started to feel the pain and, and going cold from all the blood loss. And there was a doctor, everything. I remember everything. Yeah. In slow motion, I remember everything. I think a lot of people, if a, if a traumatic event like that happens to them, they try to block out those memories or they, they find a way to sort of, you know, just have like a gap, you know, for self-preservation purposes, honestly, just so they're not remembering those, those things every day. Have you ever felt that impulse or does it help you to keep those memories with you? You know, I've definitely heard that and felt that too. Um, I felt those impulses for sure. I'm really fortunate to have found a therapist very early on that was a good fit for me. I found a lot before that that weren't, but I found a therapist really early on. So I was able to talk about it in a way that was, you know, the gory, gruesome details, excuse me, of the reality that I was facing. And for me, I, it was helpful to me. I wanted answers of what it looked like and where I was and what I did. And being, as I said, a seeker of knowledge, that was important to me. But I have, I have vague visuals of what my foot looked like on the sidewalk. I, I vaguely remember it. I know I saw it much more clearly, um, probably the details of that image. 
and my brain has definitely blocked that, which I'm glad because right. I don't, I didn't ever have nightmares of that. I have nightmares on human, but I don't have nightmares of that. So that I'm really grateful for. Yeah, that's, uh, that would be a very hard thing to carry around with you all the time. Yeah, um, I can't, yeah, I can't imagine. I'm so, so visual that, you know, I, I would remember that if my body let me, but thankfully it doesn't. Certainly. Well, if we fast forward a few years, you've become such an amazing mm-hmm. runner when you weren't a runner before. Is that correct? You were a ballroom dancer exclusively. Yeah, I was, yeah, I was a ballroom dancer exclusively that day in 2013 um, on the sidelines of the marathon. I was just, I had a day off and I was walking around and I thought, why are people running 26.2 miles for a statement necklace and a free banana? Like that was crazy. <laughs> and it was so hot that day in 2013 that runners were dropping before and after the finish line. So I remember thinking, this is nuts. Why would you do this? <laughs> Who's crazy enough to myself, do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But as an athlete myself, I respected sport in general and thought, you know, they're obviously working really hard for this, clearly. And I respect that. I respect the, the drive, even if I don't understand it. And so, yeah, I was not, I was not a runner before. And after everything happened and so many people poured their hearts out from the running community and beyond the running community in support of everyone that was injured. Uh, I, I had declared on, on national television that I was going to become a runner and I had to stay true to that promise. And I'm so glad I did. And then you were hit by the car in January of this year and yeah. which obviously affected your, your plans to participate in the Boston Marathon this year. Having been through yeah. the bombing in 2013, did that experience affect how you handled the recovery after the hit and run? 100%. Yes. I was so I was so wonderfully stubborn. Some people say stubborn is a bad thing. At that moment when I was hit, again, I remember every single detail. Uh, I was walking in had the right of way and the walk signal and a crosswalk, a car without headlights on came and hit me head on and flew me about 10 to 15 feet into the other lane and I landed, smashed um, my left side. So my prosthetic and my entire shoulder and I hit the ground and I immediately sat up, grabbed my arm, which was dangling by skin and I yelled, I first swore because that's a normal reaction. And then I yelled, I've been through too much. Help, help, I've been through too much. And I just remember thinking, like, self-preservation. I have too many plans. And then my neighbors ran out, and I was like, I'm still running Boston this year. Like, I was like, <laughs> this is I'm not going down again. Like this, And I was, I tell you, I was in more pain from getting hit by a car than I was being blown up by a terrorist. Wow. I was in so much more physical pain having my shoulder shattered and my arm shattered and my ribs bruised than I was anything else. It was so excruciating. The poor firemen that were so sweet to come to my aid, I was screaming at them in pain um, because they wanted to lift me onto the gurney and I just was shattered bone. I mean, it took them so long. Finally, they just said, Adrian, look that way, grabbed me and threw me on. I mean, because there was no easy way to do it. It was excruciating. And not to mention the emotional pain. Obviously, you had this goal with you that was front and center, and you knew immediately that that would be affected by what happened. 
Yeah, so I was exact when I got hit. I was exactly 100 days from the Boston Marathon, and I ran in 2016. But this uh, year, I was going to be running as you know a triumph over my last time. And really, I was with a new team. I had a new leg. I had a new coach, and I was really going to conquer it and had big goals. So I, I was emotionally, I was a wreck um, after being hit by the car because I just thought it's going to be forever before. Um, before I can run again. And immediately afterward, I really thought I needed my arm amputated. I mean, that's how bad of the pain I was in and how shattered my bones were. And I thought possibly an artery had been damaged. And so did the doctors at first for the first few, like while that I was at the hospital. So that was, you know, as, as someone with PTS, um, I always go to the worst case scenario when I'm in trauma, which is not uncommon. And that was the first worry. And then when I learned I could keep my arm, I thought, I have no idea if I'm going to run again um, anytime soon. And I don't know what kind of damage was done to my left leg. You know, is my arm hurt more and I just can't feel my broken bones in my left leg? Wouldn't they had a hard time x-raying me because I wouldn't, I was having difficulties about getting mobile under the x-ray and it was very, very scary. It was emotionally damaging to say the least. Absolutely. Huge changes like this, even when you decide how you want to handle them can involve grief. And people say that grief is yeah. not something that you get over, quote unquote, but it's something that you weave into your life and, and move forward with. What's your take on that? I completely agree with that. It's nothing that you get over. And I always have said, especially since 2013, or I guess since 2013, I said it is, you're never all better. You're never, oh, I'm so glad you're better now. You know, you wouldn't say that to somebody after they lost a loved one. I wouldn't say that to somebody after they've lost a leg. You're always grieving. Um, I'm still grieving the loss of my leg, not as much as I was before. Um, I've learned that there's not much I can't do without it. But the loss of mobility in my arm is tough. Um, I can't do the things I want to do. I signed up for my first yoga class for tomorrow morning, and I'm already having anxiety about it. Um, there's going to be a lot I can't do. You know, it, it is you grief at, you know, the loss of your life before all the time. And I think to find that balance, you have to do things that bring you comfort and bring you happiness uh, while still recognizing that grief and those downtimes. So some people think, oh, we'll find enough things that bring you joy and uh, and therefore it'll it'll wean out everything else. I think that's that's the wrong thing to do because it forces you to push those emotions to the side. And I think the best thing you can do is let yourself fall in the fetal position, sucking your thumb and wanting your best friend because you have to go through the mud and the muckiness in order to come out the other side. So that grief is always there, but at the beginning it looks like that. And then later it looks like, all right, I'm going to take some more me time tonight or, you know, I'm going to, book a massage and make sure I have good self-care or whatever self-care looks to you, even if it means self-care means not getting out of your pajamas all day. And then later on, it looks like recognizing it still and going to therapy on days when you, when you see it resurface. So, you know, I think it's, I think it is just about recognizing how it's showing up in your life. That's how I've, how I've dealt with it and how I've seen it through therapy. It's always evolving, just uh, always there changing, but never completely abating darn stinker you can't recognize it all the time (laughs) (laughs) it's sneaky (laughs) Um, it is it is what advice do you share with people who are for whatever reason in that raw place of grief right now just it's so tough it can feel like 
you're the only one, I'm certainly not the only amputee in the world. I'm very well aware of this. There's not a moment that went by that I have in one day or another felt like I was completely alone. I'm really lucky that I'm surrounded by loved ones and friends and, and family, but I still feel alone. So feeling alone is normal and whatever they're feeling is normal. And I'm not using air quotes right now. It is truly normal. And, you know, I think what I would tell them is there's no roadmap and let yourself just be whatever you need to be to get through the day. And if that means making plans with someone, and I still do this, if you make plans with someone and you wake up that day and you think, I'm in a rotten mood, and you call them and you say, I'm in a rotten mood, I still want to hang out, but I just need you to know that it's not you, it's just where I am right now. And I think it's opening that communication to be able to be emotionally honest that really helps. Emotional honesty, not just with other people, but with ourselves. Certainly. That makes those sense. Stages of grieving, those stages of grieving are, are a roller coaster. And once you're through anger, which is number one, so it's not uncommon to be lashing out at the people you love most when you don't even want to. You just are overcome. I know when I went through what I went through in 2013 and losing my leg, I was so angry and I didn't have any tools on how to deal with anger. Not because my parents failed at teaching me that, but they didn't have an angry kid. Well, you've never been through anything like that before also. Exactly. And so I was unrecognizable to my family and friends, but I was also unrecognizable to myself for the first time in my life. That is so hard. You know, not only physically, obviously, my body was completely different, but I was unrecognizable in my feelings. And so I had no idea what to do with that anger. And someone gave me a pillow to punch and it felt like the best thing in the world and I didn't understand it. So I think, you know, whatever that person is feeling and to realize that the the first one is anger and it's normal and it's okay to punch pillows and it's okay to throw things just not at people. Um, <laughs> and the roller coaster that you're going to go through is really, is really real and, and you're not alone, even though you feel that way. It's the best. Nothing will ever make it better. I think loved ones of friends that are going through grief and going through trauma need to say, I have no idea what you're going through, but I want you to know how badly I want to, and I'm not going anywhere. And that's all you can say. You have um, shared a lot about your recovery journey on social media, really letting people see some of the hardest moments for you. And I'm wondering, why was that important to you to let others into your experience like that? Was that part of your process of, of dealing with this, this grief and all these emotions, or was there another reason yeah, I think it's both. I think it's <clears throat> it's it stems from, you know, in 2013, I knew no amputees. I, again, thought I was the only one, plus other people that I heard were down the hall from me, but I couldn't meet them because we were all hooked up to our, you know, to the walls in our hotel or in our hospital room. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was the only one. And I looked online, but online also meant seeing the breaking news about a bombing. I didn't want to see that. So I couldn't go online and find it. Um, So I really did feel alone. I think it stems from that about wanting to be another person that someone can find online who may be going through the same thing. Uh, You certainly don't need to be blown up by a terrorist to know what it's like to have a really bad day, a really bad run, really bad attitude, or a really bad um, moment in life, whatever trauma you're going through. And so it stems from that. And then also, you know, it, it was, you're right. It was, it was and still is an outlet for me. Um, I did a movie about my first year 
in uh, recovering um, with Anderson Cooper in CNN in his 360, and it was called The Survivor Diaries. And he had asked me to kind of selfie video my recovery. And so I got in the habit of that uh, early on, and I was so grateful that I did that because even though it was, as you said, a lot of the raw moments for me, it was so therapeutic to be able to go back and see what I'd been through. For instance, this morning, you know, I woke up and the little memory thing that pops up, you know, however many years ago, oh, six yeah. years ago today, mm-hmm. I took my first unass- unassisted steps for the very first time six years ago today. And I thought, oh my gosh, I was going to stay in bed for another hour and not work out until another hour. And I just motivated myself to see how far I've come. I'm going to get out of bed. That's amazing. So, well, congratulations, you know, first of all. Really, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. But it's really great to use as a tool to see how far you've come. Um, even if you don't watch it right away, you tuck it into a file somewhere. I just really, and you don't share it with the world. I find that that's really helpful just to take those videos and, and really document what you've been through because six months or a month or a year can go by. Um, and it's hard to see those little baby steps and remember exactly how you felt. And, and it, it was helpful for me to do that. And, and I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Those milestones are, are such encouragement. Be, they really are. And if I can be, you know, an inspiration for someone else. I know so many more people were um, on social media for me and still are. Uh, if I can be that for somebody else, then then that's a win. And also on social media, you've been very open about going to therapy. Um, what are some of the ways that you choose to take care of your mental and emotional health, whether it's just in the moment or more long term? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's so important. I After 2013 happened and I lost my leg, I recognized very fast that my closest friends and family had no idea how to help me. And that is nothing against them. It's just how, how would they, right? So I just thought, I need, I'm going to go crazy. Like I was, I was wanting to pull my own eyeballs out and yell and scream and talk. And I had all this anger. And so I thought, I've got to find a therapist. And, and I did. And the recommendation of the actual therapist I found was through my surgeon, my Superman surgeon. Obviously, if he recommends someone, then I think he's great. Some of the ways that I, I take care of my mental health, and that that's, this, is, this is advice through therapy, is really being conscious of who I let into my life. I want to let people into my life and and be around people who are supporting my goals and who are healthy mentally. So, you know, we all talk often just in general about, you know, takers versus givers mm-hmm. in in personality and people that are, that are, you know, we all do both at certain times for sure, but people that are always takers and, and, and really drain you, like we really need to recognize that and, and be aware of who we're hanging out with and who we choose to spend our time with. And that to me is, has become very important in my, in my recovery and certainly showed itself when, you know, I never wanted to have to prove it, but when I was hit by the car, I realized I was surrounding myself with some really, really good humans. And I was <laughs> proud of the work that I'd done because I was surrounded by such nicer people in, after being hit by the car than I was being blown up by the terrorists. It still sounds weird to say both of those things. But I, I really made some good conscious decisions about who I spend time with. And that's a big one that I think a lot of people don't talk about. And then another one that I do is just taking some me time. I recognize that I'm 
and an extroverted introvert both. So I, I can go out and I can be social and then I need the me time. And if I don't have that, then I go a little crazy. And that seems small and maybe not directly affected by the trauma that I've had. But if I don't take that time, then I find that I'm have a shorter fuse. Um, right. And I just get more mentally exhausted and, and I don't sleep as well. And I think sleep is so underrated as well. But that's that's so because I'm an athlete. Right. That's true. As we've mentioned, you were a ballroom dancer before, uh, you know, several years ago. Do you still dance? Yeah. I, I dance around my apartment. I dance after races, um, or the Heartbreakers, the running team that I'm on. We're all, we all love a good dance party after a run. But I, I'm not dancing to compete right now. I'm really concentrating on my running. I'm not teaching dance right now. But I, I love it still. And I just ran into my dance partner recently. Um, oh, wow. I'd like to get back to it. Yeah, I'd like to get back to it, but I'm not, I'm not right now. You have, yeah. some other, you have some other was, goals to take care of right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Been there, done that. Um, I love it, and it'll always be a part of my life. I'll probably get back to it, but right now I have bigger goals than uh, Boston 2020. So what are your workouts like uh, preparing for Boston 2020? Yeah, you know, up until about a week ago, um, I've really just been trying to get my body back, back athletically uh, since being hit by the car. So, gosh, I probably got... Um, permission to run again in um, just a few months after being hit. You know, my, my shoulder was really badly damaged. I couldn't even do PT for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, you know, I had complete muscle atrophy being in a hospital bed for so long and not being able to move. I had been in you know great shape and you just lose it so fast. Uh, I'm lucky I don't really gain that much weight because I, I'm a good eater and I've been an athlete my whole life, but I... I'm just working right now on and been working on just getting my getting my grind up, getting my fitness level up to where I'm not completely exhausted after half a mile. And I did the BAA 5K marathon weekend mid-April. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was my big comeback race that I walked, ran um, that one. But I just did the BAA 10K last Sunday, which was my second race back. I was really happy with that performance and being able to have the stamina to be able to to run most of it. Um, I couldn't run all of it because of the heat in my leg was sweating. I had to drain it, right. which is a whole nother issue. But right. um, I was really happy with my athleticism. So coach has upped my mileage now and my workouts on Tuesday, for instance, will do probably like uh, 12 to 14, 400, 5K pace, 10K pace, mile pace, repeats, um, two minute break after each set. And maybe do a mile time trial, just a lot of speed work. And then after that, it's just putting the miles in. So I was, when I was first coming back, it was 30 seconds of running and 30 seconds or two minute walk. And, you know, now it's up to, you know, 35 minute run, hour run, and really by time right now instead of mileage. But, uh, you know, obviously as I get closer to Boston 2020, I'll be putting in morning workouts, strength workouts, and evening runs as well. Wow. Um, it'll be a full-time gig. I'm hoping to do some altitude training uh, come this winter as well, probably up in Colorado. Talk about progress, going from <laughs> not being able to run <laughs> half a mile to <laughs> completing a 10K. Yeah. That's pretty That's pretty outstanding. Yeah. Um, thanks, thanks. Well, it, it helps to think, you know, of those small milestones. And this morning, of course, thinking I've only been up and walking for six years. So yeah. um, it's those little moments where you're like, oh, I can't do that workout. It's so muggy out. And you think, okay, Adrian, get it together. <laughs> you got this. You're not going to get your goals if you 
make excuses. Social media memories to save the day give you a little motivation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, sometimes you have to be your own motivation. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, your, your shift to running was a huge change, given what happened. But were there parts of your past as a dancer that helped you make this change into a different sport? Yeah, you know, I think, I think there had to have been. I don't think it was as apparent when I was starting to run. It was so difficult, and I just thought of every excuse in the book not to do it. I didn't understand it. It was a very long time before I got what people call the runner's high and felt the endorphins after a run. It was tough, but I think what helped me the most that I took from dancing before was determination and just not giving up and sticking with a goal, even when you have setback after setback after setback or so long before you really see progress. And I think, you know, being able to tell people your goal is really important. I did that a lot in dance, and I certainly did that with running, with telling everyone I wanted to run the Boston Marathon. Even when I said I wanted to run the Boston Marathon, I had no idea that it was like the longest, well so-called the longest distance you could do in running. I mean, I didn't, I, if we, I'd been hit at a 5K, I probably would have been a little bit easier. Right. Um, <laughs> but it was a full 26 miles. So I had no idea what I was getting into and it was very daunting. So I think, you know, that what I took from dance really was just determination or stubbornness, depending who you ask, um, of sticking to the goal. <laughs> that would come in handy no matter what, no matter what sport you were taking on, I think. Yeah, Definitely. Well, tell us about the foundation that you're starting for uh, para-athletes. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I'm uh, starting the Adrian Strong Foundation. I'll be launching at the beginning of August. And what the foundation does is provide running blades to active and soon-to-be active amputees in the Boston area, soon-to-be nationwide. I was given, uh, a donated um, a running blade to me, and it changed my world. Uh, the running blades are not... Uh, covered under insurance in oh. any insurance. They're considered a luxury. Mm. And so if you have a regular leg, you have to pay full cash for a running leg. And that means that the uh, para-athlete is not going to be in sport. And, you know, if you have a choice of whether or not to buy a leg, and even if you have a you have the money to buy two, you're going to save that for the next leg that you need. Um, that's a walking leg because we have no choice but to walk and return to work and return to normal life. Um, and so we'll be providing running legs to active amputees in the Boston area. And once they receive that leg, they'll be signing up for a fun run or race of their choice within six months of receiving it. So there is a learning curve of receiving that leg. But the great thing is, is they can walk or run it. And the reason I'm having everyone do that and, and really want to encourage people to be part of the running community is because of how I was received in the running community. Being an amputee, I was told by the amputee community that I could only have a running coach that was an amputee or that specialized in that, that I could only run in races where there are other amputees, that I could only run next to other amputees um, and really had to take a lot of breaks. And being stubborn and hard-headed, I didn't want to follow those rules because I couldn't find anyone that was doing uh, marathon training at all and neither could my leg guy um, mm. and so I had no one to turn to and I turned to coach Dan Fitzgerald here with the Heartbreakers um, here in Boston and he took me in at a Nike Run Club event and said I'll be your coach and coached me through and I, I'm fast and and determined and a great runner who's been accepted into the running community and my running team 
And I want other people to feel that love and support and realize that they're not limited just because they run in a blade. They can run faster than or slower than or same pace as everyone around them and feel loved and accepted. And that's what's so great about the running community. And that's what I'm really proud about the foundation is just that love and acceptance and, and belonging that they'll feel. Um, and really just being able to change the dialogue. I don't think anyone was being malicious when they told me I couldn't do certain things. I think they just didn't know. Right. And I just want to be part of that change. Wow. That sounds like a great mission. Um, and we wish you lots of luck with that Thanks. work. That's so outstanding. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you. Well, I'm really, I'm really excited about it. And, and if all um, goes as, as I envision, then we'll be seeing so many more para-athletes out there on the roads. And, and not only that, it's just healthier to be active. Right. And we all know that. And especially with amputees, you know, I think one thing that a lot of people don't realize is if you gain or lose five or 10 pounds wearing a prosthetic leg, which let's face it, that's basically turkey dinner, um, <laughs> it can alter the way your leg fits and alter overall health. Because if your leg doesn't fit correctly, you're going to get skin wounds. And those skin wounds can result in you not wearing your leg, which can result in you missing work, which can result in you losing things in your life that you don't want to lose. I mean, it's really, really a double-edged sword to not be providing these active legs for people. So I really hope to change the game, not only in running and having more um, visual sight of, of seeing people on the roads running in blades, but also of the overall health of, of people that have limb loss. Right. A little motive, extra motivation there. Goodness. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Lastly, I want to read something, or I would like for you to read something, actually, that you posted on Instagram. It was six years after you walked for the first time after the bombing. Would you mind reading the whole post? I don't mind. The best thing I ever did was believe in me. Six years ago today, I walked for the first time. What a gift. I wish everyone had the memory of what it's like to learn how to walk. Not just after injury, but learn how to place a new body part on the floor how to steady your body weight over it and not fall, how to do stairs, ladders, and the uneven terrain of hiking. It makes you appreciate your body so deeply on an entirely new level. I vividly remember bursting into tears the first time I did stairs without a handrail. So proud. That girl in that photo was so lost, so broken, and so unsure of what the future held. All I knew was that step one was taking one step. So I did. And since then, it's been one step more. I've walked all over this world now and met some amazing people, celebrities, presidents. I'm often asked who the coolest person was. Easy answer. It's me. The raw, broken, terrified little girl inside me who is screaming at the new me not to give up. I think of her every single time I set a new goal, make a decision, or who I let into my life, and when things get tough. So if you're going through hell right now and you're reading this, Remember, you're not lost. You're a raw, clear-as-day version of yourself. Get to know that person and believe they're worth fighting for. Then take your first step. It's going to make me cry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It might make me cry, too. Adrian Haslett, thank you so much for talking with us today. Uh, it's been wonderful to hear about your journey, and we wish you all the best in your training. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, and and I really appreciate it. And I hope to talk to you guys again soon.
Your story is probably very different from Adrian Haslett's, but no doubt you've had challenges to overcome and unexpected changes you've had to face. And while her goal, becoming a marathon runner, might not be something you want to go for, setting and working toward goals is one of the keys to resilience. The American Psychological Association recommends doing something regularly to move toward your goals, no matter how small of a step it may be on any given day. And to ask yourself this question, what's one thing I know I can accomplish today that helps me move in the direction I want to go? Thanks for listening to Health Now this week. Take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It helps other people find out about the show. And don't forget, WebMD has tons of great content on social media. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.